0: Day One of the End of the World is a collection of first-hand accounts of what happened the first day of the zombie apocalypse. The Day One oral history collection showcases the human elements, the chaos, the heroism, and the tragedy, as seen through the eyes of people from around the world. Teenager Mel Hardin reflects back on the first time a zombie horde came through the sleepy town of Yellow Springs, Ohio, in their story, Firsts. I was just about to hit diamond on Overwatch. I'd been working on this day and night for literally months, but it would all be worth it. As I was clinching my final victory, the Choad, also known as my six-year-old brother John, stormed into Charlie's room next door. I heard him bellowing, Charlie, come quick, something's happening. Charlie, the middle child at age 13, true to form, threw pillows at the chode's head till he scurried out of the room. I don't know why I nicknamed my brother John the Chode. It's a stupid word. It's a shitty nickname. What can I say? I was a 16-year-old asshole who thought they knew everything about everything. I'm not going to rewrite my history now just to make myself look better than I was. I was smart enough not to say it in front of my mom, at least. I suspect John was a bit of an oops for my parents. We all look exactly like my dad did. Blonde hair, blue eyes... Square jaw, taller than most. My mother, a vertically challenged redhead with the Irish temper to match, was a little disappointed, I think, to not have children that would bear her image in the slightest. After all, she did all the work. But I digress. Predictably, John came into my room. He bellowed at the top of his lungs, "'Melissa, come quick!' "'It's Mel,' I corrected. "'Mel, come quick!' Something's happening. I didn't even look away from my screen. Get out of my room, chode. You know the rules. I'm not a chode. I'm a John. I explained. You can be both, okay? Now get out. Don't make me smother you. I had chili for breakfast. John was not deterred in the slightest. He stormed up to me and started pulling on my arm to get my attention. Mel, Mom is stuck. She needs help. Angry, angry, I bailed on my game and spun out of my chair. Then I grabbed John under the armpits and dragged him kicking and screaming out of my room. You know the rules, I told him as I dropped him on his rump in the hallway. Stay out of my room, Chode. John leaned his whole body against the door, preventing me from closing it. Mom needs help. Why won't you believe me? Whoa. That was a first. Normally putting him in the hallway is enough for him to give up. Doubt started to creep into my teenage, stubborn mind. I looked at my watch. 7.50 a.m. Mom should already be well on her way to work by now. I asked John, What do you mean Mom needs help? She's trapped it in her car. The green people are trying to get her. I had no idea what that was supposed to mean, but I knew his nonsense always made sense when you can see the context yourself. Looking at John's bright red face as he struggled to catch his breath, I realized I should have taken him seriously from the beginning. I bolted down the stairs. Charlie, having heard the conversation, followed quickly behind. John shrieked even louder than before as I ignored him. Mom said not to go outside, Mel. You listen to Mom. She said not to go outside. She said not to go outside. I opened the door and a grayish green decaying hand shot in between the door frame and the door and grabbed the front of my shirt. The weight of the man's body slammed against the door, threatening to break the chain lock. The friction of its skin against the door jamb made a wet, smacking sound. Mom grew up in the Bronx. It doesn't matter that we're now living in suburbia, in Ohio, where literally nothing ever happens. House Protocol dictates that we leave the front door chained at all times. And because I bike to school, I almost never use the front door. I go through the garage. So when I do use the front door, I always forget to unchain it on the first try and make myself look like an ass. Thank Christ for looking like an ass. I pushed at the door, throwing my body weight against it. Over. And over and over, Charlie broke out of his stunned stupor and slammed his body against the door in unison. The handowner never pulled back, never retreated before the bones in his forearm snapped in half. The hand and wrist bungied toward the floor, still attached by skin and sinew. Finally, we closed the door and quickly locked the deadbolt against the... The... My mind refused to speculate. I slid down the door and landed on my ass with a thud. Charlie and John's faces were whitewashed with fear. Charlie had his arms protectively around John. That was a first, too. I got down on my knees in front of John, so we were eye to eye with my hands on his shoulders. I said, okay, when did you talk to Mom? Just now. I talked to her from the window in my room. I peered outside the front room window briefly and quickly dropped the curtain back in place. A sea of what I could loosely call people were out on our front lawn, all of them grody-looking and sick. I didn't want to get their attention. I just needed to see if Mom's car was still in the driveway, and there were too many of them pressed up against the windows to see clearly. I stood up and looked out the front door peephole instead. And, of course, it was there. Mom's ancient Caprice classic had constant alternator problems. The car usually turned over after a few tries, but I guess today was not Mom's lucky day. John's words came back to me. She's trapped in her car. The green people are trying to get her. Context. I felt sick. I swung John up into my arms and flew up the stairs, carrying him on my hip with Charlie in tow. John's room was an addition to the house built on top of the garage. Dad built it so that the boys could each have their own room. He thought it was worth the money to save on future fighting. John's room was built like an attic room with a slanted ceiling and a perfect view of our driveway. I tripped over a couple of wooden blocks on the floor of John's room. I righted myself just narrowly avoiding a solid face plant. The three of us looked out the open window down at Mom's car. She had the moonroof open partway. She waved at us, and as she smiled an exaggerated game show host toothy grin, she made us laugh in spite of ourselves. Irish humor. Dark, but effective. I asked Charlie to take John to his bed and sit with him for a bit. Once they were out of sight, Mom's face changed. She let me see her genuine fear, her panic. There were hundreds of these zombies. Jesus, zombies. Really? clamoring at her car, pawing at her windows, trying to climb onto the hood. Their congealing fluids streaked the windows and quarter panels, making the entire car a slippery mess. Without the moonroof, I wouldn't be able to see if she was in there at all. Before I could ask, she shouted, I'm fine, I'm fine. Are your brothers okay? Everyone's cool, I shouted back. John came and got us like you told him to he's a good boy. You tell him he's a good boy for that. Before I could, Charlie gave him a squeeze around the shoulders and ruffled his hair approvingly. You did good, John. Good job. That was the first compliment Charlie had ever given John in his short life, and John beamed with pride at the unexpected praise. Mel, you and the boys are not to leave the house for any reason. Not for any reason, you hear me? You can see that that there's no point to leaving the house, yes? I knew she meant that there was no way I could help her. There were too many of them, and they were clearly not of peace. I need you to see if you can reach the police, your Uncle Dave. See if the house line is working. My cell phone can't get a signal. Barricade the doors and windows if you can. Make sure every window shade is down. I hollered back. I can't just leave you there like that. Yes, you can, she ordered. You can and you will. God damn it. Mom swearing. (laughs) Another first. I need you to make sure your brothers understand as much as they can. You are in charge now. They need to listen to you. You tell them I said so. We hear you, Mom, shouted Charlie. We got it. She looked relieved. Good. Mel? Yeah, Mom. She paused, looking for words that wouldn't come. Finally, she said, I love you. That's when I got scared. Really scared. The panic choked in my throat. Which is good, because there was no fucking way I would shed one single tear in front of my brothers. Not now. That first was for later. My voice cracked, but the anger grounded me. Don't you do that, Mom. I shouted. Don't you do that to us. She nodded, saying nothing. We sat there looking at each other stupidly. I had to do something, or I was going to lose my mind. I called down, asking, "'You need anything? You hungry?' "'No, I'm fine.' "'Well, you're going to need something soon,' I told her. "'We'll figure out how to get some supplies to you, and without going outside,' I added before she could say it. "'Whatever you think is best, Mel.' You're the boss. That's what she says when she's going out for the night. You're the boss. And she says it to make sure my brothers know they have to listen to me and to make sure I understand that they are my responsibility now. I never thought about what kind of responsibility I had been entrusted with before, taking care of my brothers when Mom was away. But now, acutely, I understood. This is not a drill, Mel. Suck it up. I turned and explained the situation as simply and calmly as I could to my brothers. I wasn't worried about Charlie. He was old enough to understand. I was worried about John. And as I suspected, he didn't take it well. We can't just leave her there, he screamed at me. We gotta help her. I said, I know. And we will. We're gonna help her. But we cannot go outside to help her. Ever. You got that? He pulled away from Charlie in defiance. "'You don't have to go outside, but I'm not scared. I'm going to help.' He took off like a shot and was out of the room and halfway down the hall before I could even attempt to stop him. I tried to stop him with my voice, shouting, "'You come back here right now, Chode. Don't make me tell you again!' And with a fury I have never seen in any child, he whirled on me. He was perfectly silent but his intense face and full stop made me the deer in the headlights of a Mack truck. When he was sure he had my full attention, he said to me, I am not a choad. I'm a John. God damn it. I reminded him, you don't even know what a chode is. His eyes blinked rapidly. He took a deep, shaky breath, opened his mouth to speak, and stopped. One tear slid down his cheek, which he punished with the back of his hand for its insolence. Too much happening at once for him, I thought, and I was way too harsh, I know. And even with that, I was stunned to see him do something I'd never seen him or any other six year old do. He was willing himself not to cry. Except for that one single tear, it was working. He didn't want to cry at least not in front of me. I guess apples really don't fall far from the tree. I got down onto the floor next to him and pulled him onto my lap, holding him to assuage my own guilt as much as to comfort him. I'm sorry, John. I won't ever call you that again. He looked up at me with his big, hopeful eyes and said, You won't? I promised him I wouldn't, And I never did. This has been Day One of The End of the World, an oral history of the zombie apocalypse. This episode was written and performed by Brenda Holliday. Narration by Gregory Larson. Find out more about these talented artists and this podcast at necrodemic.com.